Hello, 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 everybody. It's Ashley here of Stacks and the City. And if I didn't say it before, I'm going to say it again. Hello. So glad that you guys are here. We have such an amazing episode today with Professor Sandy Darity of Duke University discussing the wealth gap in the black community. But before we delve into that, I do want to give you guys a little bit of semantics about what's been going on with Stacks in the City and what's going to happen, all that fun stuff. You guys, first, make sure that you rate, make sure that you subscribe, five stars, comment, share with me, guys, share the podcast. If you love what you're hearing, please let everybody and their great grandma know what's going on because, you guys, my job, my goal is to give you all as much access to information, to finance as possible, to personal finance, to broaden our perspectives on what money management looks like. It's not as easy as a dollar, a cent, an Excel spreadsheet, or an ATM receipt, or that debt, or Fannie Mae, all them folk. It is so much deeper than that. And I really want to make sure that that is very well known, y'all. So let a girl know, you know what I'm saying? Let me know. Secondly, you guys, Smart Savvy Spenders is open for enrollment. You guys, I am so excited to finally create my very first masterclass on budgeting and money management. It is time to retire the nine to five, paycheck to paycheck life. I didn't tell y'all to quit your job. Ain't nobody trying to tell you to do all that. But what I am saying is that you don't have to get a check and anticipate the next one coming. No one wants to live like that. It's super stressful. And in my opinion, in so many ways, it hinders your quality of life because you're anticipating the money as opposed to living your life. So in this class, you are going to receive four weeks of on-demand virtual lessons, four weeks, four weeks of challenges, of weekly challenges designed to apply everything you learn in those virtual sessions to real life and four weeks of group sessions with moi. That's right, guys. You will have the opportunity to chitty chat with me, to ask any questions you have, and to get any comments, as well as anything extra that I think you may need to know that will better enhance your experience. You guys, again, I am so excited to be working with you guys in group sessions. I'm so excited to meet you all. You guys are truly amazing. It is an honor, an honor and a privilege to be able to share my personal finance world with you guys. I know it's going to be great. I am looking forward to it. We already have a lot of signups, guys. So please, if you haven't already, please contact me at Stacks in the City. I'll give you all that detail in the description box so that you can go ahead and purchase your course. I cannot wait. You guys, today's episode discusses black wealth in the United States of America. As a result of this huge outpour of support from all communities regarding the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been a lot of questions regarding our community. Apparently, a lot of people didn't know we existed. A lot of people didn't know we were out here struggling. Who knew? It's been pushed to the forefront, and a lot of conversations, obviously, uh, with police brutality, with massive incarceration, have come to the forefront in our news and media. Although it has waned a little bit, I still think that it is getting a lot of media traction. And another topic for discussion is the wealth gap in America. There is a wealth gap. We know that. We're just saying. But I really wanted more context into understanding the why. It's one thing just to say, oh yeah, it was a wealth gap. We ain't got no money. But another thing is to really understand the why behind that. What led to this point in our life as a minority or whomever you identify as to be in the money situation that you're in currently? And to me, that's what my conversation with Professor Sandy really did delve into. To what extent did the actions of my ancestors, the actions of the people that they were forced to interact with, affect my decisions with how I manage my money today? I really wanted to get those facts and information. And Professor Darity did do a great job of offering context into how that worked. A lot of facts. He is an economist and he's an historian and it was such an honor. So I'm going to go ahead and read his biography real fast so that you can get some understanding about who he is. He is an extreme advocate for reparations in our country. He's an economist, he gets it, he's down, and y'all, he's a Duke professor. I was actually fortunate enough to have him as my professor for my senior year. He has served as the chair of the Department of African, African American Studies 
and was a founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Previously, he served as director of the Institute of African American Research, director of the Moore Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, director of the Undergraduate Honors Program in Economics, and director of graduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His research focuses on the inequality by race, class, and ethnicity, stratification, economics, schooling, and the racial achievement gap, North-South theories on trade and development, skin shade and labor market outcomes, the economics of reparations, the Atlantic slave trade, and the industrial revolution, history of economics, and the social psychological effects of exposure to unemployment. Y'all, he is in this game. He had a TED Talk I recommend. He's had so much commentary. He was recently on the Code Switch podcast discussing reparations, and it was such an honor to have him on Sex in the City to provide insight for us as well. You guys, I know I'm talking a lot. I'm super excited about this conversation. Some things I really want you all to pay attention to is the inception of our racial gap, his argument as to who is eligible for these benefits if they were to be passed in Congress. I believe it's been a bill that's been stuck in the House for a couple of decades, just saying. But I want you to pay attention to that part. I also want you to really hone into his idea that if a certain occurrence didn't happen after 1865, when African-Americans were officially freed in the United States of America, that the racial gap may not have even existed. Pay attention to that and pay attention to his reasoning why. I also want you all to pay attention to housing, the importance of housing, this concept of housing, 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 and how that could be a huge equalizer in closing the wealth gap and why it's so important. So you guys, I'm not going to give away all the fun, juicy details of this conversation, but guys, if you're going to be out here getting to the money, you got to understand the context of the money and where it comes and how it came to you. So without further ado, I want to transition over to my fantastic interview with Professor Sandy Darity of Duke University. Enjoy, y'all. There are substantial differences in income levels between blacks and whites in the United States, but the differences in wealth levels are, are, are far, far greater. Um, so income is in in economics parlance, a flow concept. It's a, it's a flow of resources, financial resources that we receive in a, a given interval of time. We usually talk about a year, so we talk about people's annual income frequently. Um, and it's primarily a, a consequence of what people earn in the labor market uh, for most people. Uh, but but generally, for most people, income is, is a consequence of what you earn. Yeah. Uh, in contrast, wealth is the net value of your property. It's the difference between what you own and what you owe, or the difference between your assets and your liability. And it's a stock concept in the sense that this is something that you potentially can carry with you over time. Uh, and is not contingent on any specific or given year necessarily. Uh, and wealth is actually more powerful than income uh, because uh, wealth can substitute for income. I, mean, I suppose, suppose you have a loss in income because you lost your job or there was a catastrophic illness in your family that led to a major medical emergency or any other type of unexpected significant expense that you might be confronted with. Uh, if you're in a wealthier household, those kinds of expenses can be met much, much more easily uh, without anxiety, without stress, and without imposing deprivation on your family. Uh, in addition, wealthier households have a greater capacity uh, to acquire quality homes in high amenity neighborhoods that would be inclusive of potentially uh, better schools. Uh, they also have the capacity to provide their offspring with, uh, with higher education, uh, college education, without uh, the young people coming away from completing their degrees with a significant amount of student debt. In fact, in wealthier families, the uh, young person could come away with no student debt whatsoever. Uh, in some cases, I guess people get donated the homes outright, in which case, 
case, uh, they don't have any mortgage payments at all. Uh, and what I want to emphasize is that these differences in wealth and accompanying opportunities for economic security are very, very different by race. Uh, so uh, if we look at the data for 2016 from the Survey of Consumer Finances, which is the most recent data we have, uh, the 2019 survey has been taken and completed, but the Federal Reserve has not reported it yet. Uh, I assume it will be available to us later this year. But in the 2016, uh, in the 2016 survey, if we were to look at the results uh, of, of estimates of wealth by race, uh, we'll find that the average black household has $800,000 less in net worth than the average white household. The amount of wealth that's held by black Americans. Uh, black Americans are about 13% of the nation's population, but only hold about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. And there is a significant billionaire effect insofar as uh, three, three billionaires, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, to have a higher level of buy than 80% of the, the, the nation's black population combined. So, uh, so there, is an, there is a billionaire effect, but it's not just the billionaire effect that explains these kinds of disparities because 25% uh, of white households in the United States have a net worth that is in excess of $1 million and it's only 4% of black households. And furthermore, if you look at um, white households that are at the lowest end of the income distribution, so let's, let's say the poorest 20% of white households, the white households that fall into the bottom 20% of the income distribution, they actually have a higher level of median wealth than all black Americans taken together. So these racial disparities are, are, are staggering and they are fundamentally a consequence of the cumulative intergenerational effects of white supremacy in American society. Wow, so you've said, you said so, so much. Um, for me, I wanna back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about the differences that you said between income and wealth. So, yeah. In theory, there's a disparity in our community with even earning um, income as well. Is that correct? Oh yeah, it's significant too. Uh, you know, if we were thinking about household income, uh, the typical black household has anywhere between, I, I guess, 65 to 70 percent of the income of white households. Uh, but if we're looking at wealth, the average black household has one tenth of the wealth of the average white household. An average American would have. What constitutes as wealth? Is it home ownership? Is it business ownership? So if we're, th yeah, uh, it's, it's actually all, all of the above. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's pr property in a home. It's property in a business. It's property in real estate, uh, which is not necessarily residential. Uh, you know, uh, if, you, if you think about it, uh, uh, there's a significant amount of property that's associated with real estate in uh, in Manhattan and New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, uh, but even the residential properties, high-rise apartments and the like, uh, belong to somebody who is mm -hmm. uh, who is gaining gaining income off of the leases, um, and so um, so. So there's, there's both residential property as well as uh, rental property. There's other types of real estate that's used for other purposes. There's uh, home ownership. There's um, uh, their financial assets like stocks and bonds and the like, other types of equity. Uh, and so, uh, and then, then there's also some homelier items that are typically not as lucrative and actually can depreciate, but still have to be counted in the asset column. And these are durable goods, like your automobile or uh, your refrigerator 
or your washing machine, uh, various kinds of appliances fall into the asset column. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't all generate the same level of returns or resources. And so one of the things people are typically concerned about when they, they use the term portfolio to describe the full range of assets that you might possess, they talk about differences in the returns on particular assets within your portfolio. Uh, but if you want to calculate total wealth for a household or an individual or a person, you have to subtract from the assets their debts or liabilities. And so if we're thinking about people who are relatively young, young adults, uh, frequently the most significant debt component that they have is, uh, is debt that's associated with educational loans that they Absolutely, might have taken. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, but debts can take on a variety of forms, including in the process of purchasing a home. Uh, if you take out a mortgage, uh, you're incurring debt. And so you would have to offset the equity value of your home with the, uh, with, with the outstanding debt. And uh, in the Great Recession, we talked about people's homes being underwater. And that's because the, uh, the market value or the equity value of their homes was actually less than the accumulated debt that they had to pay on the homes. Uh, so so that, that's what we mean. And that's when people are potentially threatened with foreclosure. Wow. So particularly in the home, um, the home space, there are um, a few, if not many African-American homeowners. And I do talk a lot about homeownership as well. But it seems like you're also implying that even based on your neighborhood can factor into how much money your house is worth, what the value of that is. Well, I mean, your, your race factors into the value of the home uh, so that there's, uh, there's kind of a race penalty for blacks from homeowners. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, because of the long history of the way in which residential segregation has played out in the United States, uh, we've had a process where Black-owned homes uh, have consistently been devalued or undervalued relative to white-owned homes. And, um, you know, this is, this is regardless of the structural characteristics of the home. Uh, this is particularly true if a Black-owned home is in a predominantly Black neighborhood. Uh, and uh, so you, you will get these sharp differentials and equity values on homes, depending upon the demo demography of the neighborhood. Uh, but, um, uh, but it's also the case that uh, if we think about access to home ownership, uh, it's more difficult for blacks to get uh, credit on the same terms as whites even if they have the same kinds of credit worthy conditions. Uh, so, you know, the discriminatory effects ripple in multiple ways. They, they, they start with um, the, the, your, your capacity to get into purchasing a home in the first place, uh, but then they carry over into the question of how much appreciation you can expect in the home uh, and their racial differences in that. Uh, I think the process really starts with what we call restrictive covenants, which were, uh, uh, which were uh, items that were included in deeds that precluded the sale of a home to black people. Uh, and this is quite explicit you know, uh, in, in these deeds. Uh, restrictive covenants, the language of restric restrictive covenants still exists in some deeds, but it's not legal. And so they are not, um, they're not enforceable. But uh, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court di di dictating that um, restrictive covenants were not something that, was continu that could continue to be legal in the United States, you then had a set of practices that were uh, a collaboration between private banks and the federal government that we put under the, uh, the label of redlining, which essentially was uh, a deprivation of credit uh, to particular areas of a city, uh, usually those areas of the city that had a relatively high concentration of black residents. 
And of course, those areas of the city had high concentrations of black residents because black residents could not buy into other parts of the city. So you had a double whammy. You're excluded from certain parts of the city, uh, but you're also denied adequate credit uh, within the part of the city where you're living if you want credit if you're going to try to make a home purchase somewhere else in the city as well. Okay. Um, so redlining is, is one of the, uh, the pernicious dimensions that also contributed to the differential value in black and white homes. So you're saying that even based on where you live can potentially prevent the amount of credit or access to credit or the opportunities that you have to um, to getting credit and therefore getting a good mortgage and therefore finding a neighborhood that could increase over time like so many of these other white neighborhoods have. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's in many ways, it's kind of baked into the way in which the system operates. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is not to say that people should not make their best effort to improve their conditions, but right, it is right. to say that the dice are loaded against black folks. Wow, I I didn't know I didn't know any of this. Um, so I, I really appreciate hearing from you because I feel you're just such a wealth of information. Um, well, I'm just I'm just an old head who's been oh, looking at this for a long time. <laughs> He's so humble, you all. <laughs> I want to. To me, you're as much of a historian within um, the Black American community, as well as you are um, a professor of economics. And I want you to take us back into history and really talk about what factors in, in our history have really um, contributed to creating this wealth gap. Like I know you talked about um, redlining, but all of these things can happen in theory today, to this day. I've seen it personally happened before. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through a brief history of economics within the Black American community? This is, this is very uh, comp compact, yeah. but I'll try. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to talk about the, the genesis of the racial wealth gap, you know, where it comes from, yes. what the origin story is. And so the obvious beginning has to be the fact that um, Black Americans, living Black Americans who were descendants of folks enslaved in the United States, their ancestors first come here as enslaved people. And so, in effect, for the most part, uh, Black folks were somebody else's property. Uh, you know, forced immigration of Africans resulted in them being of monetary or financial value to somebody else but not having any significant capacity to accumulate wealth of their own. Some outliers, there's some exceptions. Uh, some free blacks uh, were able to do uh, somewhat well economically. Uh, there were some enslaved black folks who were artisans whose uh, craft skills permitted them to have some measure of independence within the system of slavery. But those are highly exceptional cases. Uh, the, the general case is uh, black folks really had no opportunity whatsoever to accumulate any kind of property or, or other types of assets during the, uh, the course of enslavement. So that's, that's, that's the beginning of the rift between uh, black and white wealth in the United States. It's the period of slavery. But in the immediate aftermath, there was an opportunity for the nation to correct the magnitude of those kinds of differences. And it looked like it was going to happen. Uh, when uh, General Sherman reached the uh, coast of Georgia, reached Savannah, uh, he met with a group of black leaders, predominantly individuals who were uh, ministers. And he and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had a conversation with these, 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 these black leaders and asked them what they wanted. And their spokesperson, Garrison Fraser said, uh, give us some land and leave us alone. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, neither really happened. Um, but 
two days later or so, Sherman did issue special orders number 15, which essentially allotted a stretch of land uh, from, uh, from South Carolina to Northern Florida that was supposed to be allotted to the formerly enslaved, particularly those individuals who had joined the Union Army uh, and who were in the vicinity of Sherman's uh, encampment. Uh, what subsequently took place was about 400,000 acres of land were allotted to 40,000 of the formerly enslaved. And they had started the process of, of settlement and, uh, and, and, and farming on those lands. Around when the word came down, I'm sorry? I'm sorry, around what year is this? This is all in 1865. Oh, wow, okay. So yeah, so it's, 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 and actually in January 1865, it's before the war actually had ended that, that Sherman issued this special order. And so the process of settlement actually began slightly before the war was actually over. Uh, but in the aftermath of the war, Lincoln is assassinated and his successor is his vice president at the time, Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Johnson was one of the uh, deepest accommodationists to the traitorous Confederates. And so he actually reverses this process of land settlement and uh, the, the formerly enslaved folks who were on the 400,000 acres have to depart and those lands were restored to the former slaveholders. Uh, Sherman's full order actually specifies about 5.3 million acres to be allocated, but uh, only about 400,000 of those acres actually got, got settled on, even on a temporary basis. Um, and if you think about the fact that there were 4 million formerly enslaved persons who were emancipated at the end of the war. Uh, and if you take the 40 acre measure as, uh, uh, as, as uh, an allotment per household, average households about four people, if, if you wanna calculate that, then you're really talking about 10 acres per newly emancipated individual. And so the total allotment that's associated with the 40 acres rule would have been 40 million acres. Uh, that, was never, that was never allocated to the formerly enslaved. Uh, at the same time, the United States had activated what we now refer to as the Homestead Acts, which began a process of allotments of 160 acres of land to whites in the western part of the United States as they settled territories that formerly had belonged to the native population. These 160 acre allotments are perhaps one of the largest federal handouts ever made. Uh, and, uh, and they have repercussions to the present day because I think they're estimates that anywhere from 45 to 90 million living Americans, living white Americans, uh, are actually beneficiaries of those allotments because of the intergenerational transmission of resources. Uh, so, so that's the beginning from my perspective of the separation in black and white wealth in the aftermath of the Civil War mm -hmm. is the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with 40 acres, but simultaneously to give uh, large numbers of white Americans 160 acre allotments and in the western part of the United States. Uh, and then the situation is compounded by uh, uh, conditions under which blacks develop some degree of prosperity in a number of communities throughout the United States. And those communities are typically destroyed in uh, white massacres. Uh, these massacres not only took, white, uh, took black lives, but they also meant the destruction of black property or the appropriation of that property by whites. Uh, so one of the most significant examples of appropriation of property takes place in Ocoee, Florida, where a white massacre results in all of the deeds being, uh, being seized by, uh, by white particip participants in the mob violence. 
probably the most uh, famous instance of one of these massacres is probably the 1921 Tulsa massacre, um, which actually found its way into the first episode of the um, of the TV the TV version of of the of the Watchmen story. Uh, um, but uh, the year 1919 was bloody, and that's why people refer to it as the uh, Red Summer of 1919, where upwards of 35 to 36 of these massacres took place across the entire United States, including the city of Chicago. Uh, so, so when Black people did manage to accumulate wealth, it frequently was subjected to uh, destruction or seizure. Uh, and then in the 20th century, we've talked a bit about uh, the impact of, on home ownership of uh, restrictive covenants and then subsequently redlining. Uh, but I also would like to add that there was another social policy that was introduced in the 20th century, which was perhaps as a dramatic an effort to increase social mobility as the allocation of the 160 acres under the Homestead Act. And this was the GI Bill that was provided to returning veterans after uh, World War II. Uh, the GI Bill had provisions that provided support for people to get higher education and also provided support for them to purchase homes. Um, and it was administered on a vastly discriminatory basis. Uh, one of the reasons they were able to pass the legislation was by agreeing with Southern Democrats that the administration of the program would be heavily decentralized. So the individual states and municipalities had uh, complete discretion over whom would receive the benefits from the bill. And so in one of the most extreme examples, if we think about the state of Mississippi, there were only two returning black veterans who received any kind of uh, support for home purchases. Uh, in the in the entire state, and so uh, so then you're you're loading the dice again because you're creating another separation between blacks and whites in terms of who are the beneficiaries from these wealth building opportunities that the federal government is providing. Uh, so I'd, I'd say in some uh, American policy has produced the racial wealth gap. And so we need a new set of policies to remedy the situation. And that's why I've been uh, an advocate for many years of uh, a reparations program for uh, Black American descendants of US slavery. What? Wow. So, wow, my, my brain is like exploding. And it's crazy. I was a history major in undergrad. And I'm always appalled at how little, they, you know, they really talk about what happened to our people because it's, it's one thing for it to, it's always glossed over. And I think what white people think is that, you know, slavery was over in 1865 and that was kind of it, but there's still legislation that has to be passed just for us to feel like we are the same type of American citizen as our white yeah. counterparts, even the immigrant populations in this country, because they don't, they didn't necessarily have the same policies written down to uh, hurt their people like they did for us. Um, yeah. Now really this is this is a this is a history that's very specific to folks who are descended from the uh, the emancipated persons who were supposed to receive. 48-acre land allotments or the equivalent. And that restitution was never made. And that period where failed restitution took place was followed by uh, almost a century of legal segregation in the United States accompanied by white mob violence. Uh, more recent immigrants have come after 1965 for the most part. I think the heaviest wave actually in, from the 1980s on they do not share that historic, uh, that historical experience. Uh, it's very specific to uh, to Black American 
victims of United States slavery. Uh, you know, the other communities of Blacks have been exposed to anti-Black police violence within the period of time they're here, other types of discrimination as well. But uh, their, their particular history does not share the same type of origin story that I've been talking about, yeah. uh, which, which finds its critical crossroads point in the immediate aftermath of slavery when restitution could have been provided but wasn't. Um, there, there are times when I think that if the 40 acre allotments had been made and if, uh, if black folks access to that land had been protected because it probably would have required the Union Army to stay in the South much longer yeah. to prevent the expropriation of that land or, or, or or in addition to arm black people themselves to protect their own property. Um, if, if that had occurred, we may not have had any need, we may not be having any need to have a conversation about reparations wow. in, uh, in 2020. That's really, really intense to think about. I mean, I think one of the things that you said was you were talking about your own disappointment about your, your, your historic, your, your education in history. And I think one of the problems is, uh, well, well, maybe there are two problems, but the first problem is uh, I think that people don't recognize how organic the Black American story is to the American story. They, mm -hmm. they are not separate. Uh, you know, we, we can't cordon off African American history or Black American history as something yeah. that's separate. Yeah from the full narrative of what has happened in the United States because of the centrality of the way in which race has defined American society. Okay, Definitely. so, so that, that's the first thing. And the second thing is there's actually a reason why uh, in many cases we don't get that historical story. I didn't get it in high school in this way. Uh, I didn't get it in college in this way. Um, it was actually some of my other black peers who turned me on to some literature that I was absolutely unfamiliar with that was not taught in our classes that gave me a, a, an increasingly a different perspective about this. And so I'm grateful forever to Definitely. my black peers in college uh, on that score. But, uh, but there are two organizations, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the Daughters of uh, the American Revolution, made a conscious and systematic effort to sterilize the teaching of American history so that you could transform the Confederacy into a heroic effort rather than a traitorous effort. And, uh, and they, they've been highly successful. And uh, I think it has a lot of repercussions in terms of how people think about the worth or value of reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Got it. So, you did talk obviously about how a solution that could help close this wealth gap could be uh, introduction of reparations. But obviously, that concept of the forty acres and a mule that's always used in, in our lexicon isn't necessarily going to be the most effective way to close the gap for our people now, or would it? What What are your suggestions for how a reparations so, so there's there's some controversy over this. There's some people who say, yeah, we want land. Uh, well, personally, I have no skills in farming as real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I've argued uh, that what should happen is folks should receive direct payments to make up the differential between black and white wealth. And if folks want to use that for the purposes of purchasing land, then all well and good. But folks who don't want to do that would have the discretion not to as well. So I'm somebody who falls onto the camp that says reparations should be a matter of direct payments to eligible recipients. Doesn't necessarily have to be exclusively cash payments per se. I mean, you could provide people with trust accounts or endowments that uh, would in some way compel them to spend off of their, uh, off of their newly uh, acquired assets more slowly. But, uh, but I'm open-minded about that. 
but I think that uh, individual eligible black recipients for reparations need to have discretion over how the money is used. And for those who want to buy land, fine. Those who don't want to buy land, fine. Got it. But we would need obviously congressional support for something of this matter. Yeah. Man. And yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. That's the only way it could really happen is uh, to have congressional legislation for a comprehensive national reparations project. Mm -hmm. You've also talked about some distinguishers on who would receive those uh, reparation payments. Like you said, um, a lot of, even the black community isn't just black Americans. Although I think when our country thinks of the African American community, they think of black Americans. But I feel that immigrant, immigrant populations of the black community, like your Jamaicans, your Nigerians, do pretty well from what I've seen in this country. Like even when I was in school in undergrad, the majority of my African American friends are usually first generation Americans. And I never saw a person who looked like me, really, who went to a school like Duke. Um, even in this space, I, I podcast, I talk about money management. Many of the people are usually first generation black immigrants. What is your, first of all, what are your thoughts on that? And second of all, um, can you describe more of the, the qualifiers for getting that reparation, who would receive the reparations check? who receive reparations under an African-American reparations initiative. Um, in our new book, From Here to Equality, Kirsten Mullen and I argue that there should be two criteria. Uh, the first criterion is what we refer to now as a lineage standard. And this is an individual would have to show that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States not elsewhere, but in the United States. And second, the, uh, the second criterion is what we refer to as an identity standard. So for at least 12 years before the onset of um, the enactment of a reparations program or the enactment of a study commission for a reparations program, an individual would have to show that he or she or they um, self-identified as Black, Negro, or African-American. So uh, the first standard is to establish your connection to slavery as it was practiced in the United States. And the second standard is to establish your self-classification as being a person who's a part of the Black community prior to there being any financial benefit or expected financial benefit from doing so. How, where is our country right now in terms of enacting a program like this? Um, so the, the country is, is not, not on the verge of enacting a full-scale reparations project, but it may enact a study commission for reparations. And uh, that study commission is uh, embodied at, at the present moment in a piece of legislation called HR 40 uh, that is in the House of Representatives. And then there's a companion bill in the Senate, S1083, which actually uh, is, is, is kind of a shell because it, it just is a replication of what's in HR 40. It's not a separate piece of legislation at all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that this is potentially a good direction because the prelude to Japanese American reparations was the creation of a commission that was known as the Commission on Wartime Relocation and uh, Internment of Civilians. And that commission produced a report that accomplished two things. First, it established that the United States government's officials knew that the Japanese American community was not a national security threat during World War II, but still permitted, uh, still proceeded to put them in uh, a variety of confinement camps all across the United States. Uh, but the second thing it did was sketch uh, an outline of how uh, a legislative program might be designed to provide restitution. So I think something similar would need to be done as a prelude to black American reparations. 
my reservation is that I think that the current piece of legislation, HR 40, is quite unsatisfactory in terms of how it's written. And I think it requires significant revision uh, before it can go forward. Otherwise, I'm not sure that we'll have the type of reparations program uh, projected from the report that, that is really the type of reparations program we'll need. Got it. Wow. So uh, many of my um, listeners 